0: Hey everyone, this is Dan Albert of TheFightSite.com Recording another solo pod, you may have heard me do this before Where I call it My Life is a Goddamn Mess Well, it's a working title, so I might as well stick with that Mostly, this can be considered a pretentious, uh, you know, just narcissistic obligation of my self-loathing, you know Or manifestation of my self-loathing, whatever you want to call it I am bad with titles, as anyone who has ever talked to me would know, but anyways, this is the second episode of that, a bit of a solo podcast, mostly covering uh, some of the events of the last week, but also just some talking points, some Patreon questions, some topicals I find interesting. Uh, So the first part of this will be covering a bit of a recap of UFC 269, since that was the main talking point. Unfortunately, I've been unable to really catch up on the modern boxing scene, so I was unable to catch Lomachenko's fight and really break down specifics of, like, his lead hand work and his footwork and creating angles on people and then making them quit. I actually don't know what the full result was off the top of my head. All I know is he did ask his opponent, Comey, to... Well, he asked his corner man to throw in the towel, which is cold as shit, but, you know... Um, without further ado, the main main talking point is, however, UFC 269, I think, for the, the combat sports world. So this card, um, it wasn't as strong as the last two main UFC cards, 267 and 268, but that's kind of expected on paper, I'd say, if you've listened to Fano and I's, uh, overall preview. But there was still a lot to like here, um, mostly in terms of results. I think we mostly caught a lot of dynamics. Some things are surprising, such as Blanchfield kind of getting the better of Maverick on the undercard. Um, a lot of things weren't so surprising or interesting, but th- that's besides the point. So, I think the main talking point begins with Oliveira Poirier, and at this point of recording, I've, pardon me, I've already rec- released a article about Oliveira's performance over Porria, since grappling isn't really my like specialty. Mostly, I focused on the striking, but uh, it's really great to see just how good of a fighter Charles Oliveira has become. Because I think very few people, well, and, and even then, I think they've kind of been surprised in the last few years just by how good Charles has gotten. But in terms of like implementing a very sound pressure transitional kind of offense to really wear his opponents down and then like finish him decisively. Words cannot really express how good of a finisher Charles Oliveira is, but I think Charles Oliveira has always been dealt a bit of a bad rap and considered, well, quitter is kind of the main word, but I think like many fighters, that's not really it. It's more so like he always faced someone who was a bit better than him and just always could lose to them. And and, well, he also gassed out because he was enforcing a pace he couldn't really keep. But now you see that he has far more control over that pace. And can also, if he is going to slow down, then he's going to have ways to really slow you down. In particular, he's a horrific body operator. Not the best in the sport, but he's definitely gotten up there. And um, he really got to show off what he, how good he was in striking exchanges against this fight. Because um, Dustin Poirier is still, as I said on the preview pod, an absolute motherfucker on the feet. That dude has beaten some of the MMA's best strikers. And I don't honestly personally think that if this fight remained on the feet, that Oliveira would have won based upon the first round going the way it was. Because as amazing as that opening round is... I mean, by the way, that first round is probably round of the year. If it isn't, it's a very close second and or third. Um... I think the only things that really rival it off the top of my head are Chandler, Gaethje, round one, and obviously Volcortega, round three, or probably the other few ones. And I might be forgetting one that tends to happen, but nonetheless, that opening round is absolutely sensational on both guys' part. Seeing how Oliveira really implemented ways to really shut down a lot of Poirier's entries... And then, like, really tear him up in the clinch, especially. That part kind of surprised me. I think um, I expected Pori to have a few more answers with the grips. But that said, how Charles Oliveira uses frames is really, really clever. And he built upon, like, that clinch game, especially to really, like, tear pori up. Plus how he created the clinch. I mean, for a lot of those details, you can read my article that... It's already out, and I really, really recommend it because it gives me an excuse to praise, like, Muay Thai and, like, frames and why they're important in the clinch. But um, seeing Oliveira really implement the smarter strategies here really, really made a difference in making that round competitive. Um, And ultimately, his transitions are what won him that fight. But having said that, he had to go through the fire quite a bit, which is actually kind of... what I think most people forget about Dustin Poirier. Despite the fact that Poirier has a lot of issues with his ring craft and being a strategic kind of fighter, which he isn't, Poirier is not a strategic fighter at all he, because he kind of has to figure things out. Whether or not that's a failing of himself or at is debatable. I, I think a lot of people might veer towards issues with American Top Team for all the talent they produce. But nonetheless, I I think it's a testament to how good of a fighter Dustin Poirier is that in most of these fights, he's still very, very tough to beat. Like, even, like, Khabib Nurmagomedov had to walk through, like, a few dangerous moments. moments, And same with Charles Oliveira here. Like, that first—now, there aren't many people who are going to survive some of the moments Poirier put on him. Because outside of even the two knockdowns, the first one was a little weird, but the second one, like— like, not many fighters are going to recover and be able to survive from those, and there were plenty of other moments where Poirier was cleanly, like, rocking him through that, that round. Oliveira definitely showed, like, w- way better poise than he would have in previous points of his career dealing with those, especially when it came to, like, backing off using his counterpunches and frames. Again, consult my article, because that's where I cover a good deal of stuff, but that was a hell of a round, and, well... It's a testament to how good both guys really are, because Poirier like had a lot of his weapons shut down, and he was still such a multifaceted danger on the feet that he found ways to really make Oliveira pay. But Oliveira also, I mean, just read my article; I think it sums it up way better than anything else. But the key to it is Oliveira mixing together his transitions, and so the moment Oliveira really started putting those wrestling and bringing the fight into different phases despite Poirier's, like, kind of underrated, like, physical strength really helping him, that's kind of where Charles took over a big part of it, really, is just, ultimately, Poirier's just ring craft gave Oliver too many opportunities to work, and eventually that just, I don't know if it would, was wearing him down, necessarily, because as that's kind of one of those fights where, despite as good as, as Oliveira's bodywork was, Dustin Poirier still fights insanely well tired, and Oliveira can slow down, and even with a controlled pace, so it's it's hard to say what that fight would have looked like if it went on more, but I will say that if it had stayed standing again, it would have been really scary for Oliveira, and I'm not sure he would have won that, but the transitions are what won him that fight, and I mean, th- this finish to it's pretty great. It's once again, a great example of overcoming an incredibly tough adversary on the feet and then showing that, like, you have a deeper tools kit. It's really shown, like, a great example of Olivera's grit, his improvements and determination to really, really, like, die to defend and how far he's come. And honestly, it's really inspiring that such a fighter like that exists in a may amongst, like, so many others. But, um... It's it's hard to be a Poirier fan as well here because th- this is a fight where two of my favorite fighters on earth went against each other. I'm glad they at least had that opening round. But um, it, it really got a little sad to see that um, or, or realize that there's still a very good chance that Dustin Poirier has a, an uphill battle to climb to f- get to the top of the division. And it's not like he isn't out of the picture yet, far from it, as this I think this fight demonstrated. But um, it's going to be hard for him unless he addresses the ring craft. That is the big thing. As good as Dustin Poirier is on the feet, he has to figure things out. And he's always going to have that issue with conceding so much space because he's so comfortable in the pocket. And someone like Oliveira, who is going to start fast from the opening bell and really try to put those phase. ...is on you, that's just... ...that's a problem. And, well, it, it's hard because a fighter... ...despite not really ever winning this belt... ...yet, Dustin Poirier is still one of the best fighters in the world. And I don't really think he should be considered an easy night... ...for just about anyone on it lightweight. I really, really think it would be a mistake to count him out. And I'd also go as far to say nobody beats him in a straight-up firefight. There are some who have a shot of doing that, but... ...he's also the action fighter for firefights. And, I mean, come on. (laughs) Hard to outwill him there. Um, As for Oliveira, he has some really interesting tests on the horizon. Gaethje, I think, is the fight everyone wants to see, and it will be next, and rightfully so. And I'm not really equipped to break that fight down yet, but um, it's, on paper, the moment I think about it, it should be fantastic, really. Um, It's... There's no way not to be excited. Makachev is the other one people are talking about. And although I, I think Mokachev's is an in- interesting contender and possible foil for Oliveira, it's hard for me to really n- gauge that matchup yet, it- which is why I'm hoping maybe Dariush is able to force more questions out of Mokachev. of And also Dariush also pulling off an upset would be interesting. Because uh, I know like Saram, for instance, really wants... Oliveira, Dariush, but can't really speak on the matchup since I'm not a Dariush understander, you know. But um, lightweight, lightweight, I think unfortunately missed out on answering the whole Khabib beat can you beat Khabib question. But at the same time, I'd also argue that having kind of an open, very competitive division like this, where guys are kind of really going after each other in fights now, I think that's kind of its own reward for excitement because. I mean, Lightweight has been really fun this year, and it's actually been progressing after being on hold for so long due to the Conor, could be even Tony kind of triangle that due to, like, promotions, McGregor being, well, McGregor, and injuries and whatnot really, like, kept things on standstill for a while. But it's kind of cool to see the division progressing forward. Lightweight's a cool place, and we should be really happy for some of the fighters we have, like Oliveira and Poirier. They're two... my favorites for a reason and it's hard not to root for them especially when outside the cage they're as good as they are inside the cage really um so so that's the i i think the crux of that main event it ruled it was one of the best rounds of the year i'd say i'd say it was one of the best fights of the year just on that round alone even though it kind of got one side after that but you know it, it, that's a different discussion entirely I guess um now the go main event and I kind of shook the mainstream MMA world cuz women's MMA's goat uh, Amanda Nunes got well beaten by Juliana Peña and um man this was funny um I I don't even think I can properly convey it since I'm well giving a pod and nah, I'm really bad at like conveying kind of the humorous tone of this to me so a lot of people have been talking about that Peña jab and I want to point out one thing. So this is something you kind of understand when you've actually practiced. And I think um, some someone like Tuman or maybe like Hax or Ryan could probably articulate this a little better than I can. But in my experience with jabs, you you aren't really like throwing it straight out like a forearm. It's not like a frame, for instance. Like you're not just putting it out there for the sake of putting it out there. You're trying to do different things it's like coming out of your shoulder you're turning the fist it's supposed to be kind of a corkscrew a bit same with the right except the right is more so to like generate that kind of power and the jab is like more multifaceted usage. usages so when you're throwing a jab it comes often from your shoulder more than anything else and that allows you to generate it fast and then retract it quickly That's not what Pena's doing. What Pena was doing was she was... It was like she was just sticking her arm out there. But she was, like, trying to turn her hip at the same time. So what would happen was she would just put that jab out there. Not even turn the fist. But it would still land. Which is its own funny part that deserves some discussion in a second. But she would be throwing and kind of, like, not even turn her. And would, like, try to turn her whole body the side of her body instead of like using her shoulder specifically, which made it hard to reset that jab, but it didn't matter because it still landed and Nunez has zero head movement. The the other, the one little thing that Pena was doing that you should be doing with your jab is kind of messing with your head movement, like taking a slight slip off of it. And this just ruins Nunez's life for some reason But then it gets funnier because just when you think the jab might be the worst part, you then see the right in the right hand. This is this is even more amusing to me. So mechanically, when you're throwing that right hand, it's similar to the jab. Like you're supposed to turn your fist kind of in a bit of a corkscrew motion. But the difference is you're kind of turning your body like you're shifting your weight a little bit. That's not what Peña did. Peña basically had her right hand coming in as an overhand, and she was moving her head with it. it, like, moving forward with her whole, like, body instead of just twisting her hip, and so it meant that her head was traveling level to her fist, and it led her getting square all the time, and yet this also counters Noon as consistently... And so you get these exchanges that basically everyone was freaking out over, or and to be fair, um, it was pretty entertaining if you really find it as funny as I did. But I suppose if you're like more of a mainstream person and who's not like a technique nerd, you could also just be like, "Whoa, God, Nunez is getting touched." But it's not like these weaknesses weren't apparent. Nunez has always had issues in the pocket, it and if she can't like bomb you out. With her physicality, or like time you, then she's gonna struggle a lot, and so it's like Pena just kind of staying there and refusing to go anywhere was having this amazingly effective, um, just result for her. So there, the, so even though the jab and right hand were mechanically awful from Pena, they kept landing because Nunez wouldn't try to deal with them. And so what ended up happening was Nunes just keeps staying in the pocket and goes like, why won't you die? And in her defense, I too was very confused why Pena wasn't dying. But then I realized it's because Pena was the one who was actually using slightly more head movement. Even though like Nunes is throwing her punches way mechanically better. Just that one little thing in the pocket was the difference. And so Nunes literally ends up punching herself out until... Pena gets her against the fence and then taps her. It's just, it's really, really funny, honestly. But, I mean, hey, at least there's a cool narrative maybe for, like, women's MMA's, like, uh, larger weight classes now. So, I guess you have that going. Like, what does Nunez do that she's lost for the first time in ages because her trying to bomb someone out didn't work? Is she going to try to do the Shevchenko thing where she just kind of, like isn't gonna do much which is its own problem but or is she gonna try to put the work into to improve and well that's its own question but um I don't really think there's much to really be impressed about Pena here but um hey at least it was super entertaining if you like kind of like the nitty-gritty kind of um slight kind of adjustments are a little better but mostly it was just really, really funny. It's probably the funniest thing I've seen in MMA all year, to be honest. And mostly it's just because of the overhand, right? I level with your head thing working as much as it did. That's just funny. But um, I think it, it also it opens a dialogue about w- what's kind of the status on women's MMA, though. Like, Because Nunes wasn't really pushing like, a benchmark in terms of like skill, because she would often rely upon that physicality and has always looked this vulnerable. And she can't sustain her own insane pace sometimes if she can't bomb you out. Which is why, like, 115s upper class, like, um... fighters are always more interesting. Like, Nama Yunez, Zhang, Joanna Janjacek always have those kinds of answers. But you don't really see that with, um... You, you didn't really see, well, Chef Shen go too, but in her own regard. And you don't really see that with Nunez. But that's a longer discussion I think can wait for another day. The rest of this card um, Walter Waite continues to confuse me with Neil and Ponzinibbio. I had a feeling this fight was going to suck. And I had a feeling it was probably going to suck mostly because Jeff Neil. How Neil fights is a very my turn, your turn kind of way, I think is a good way to phrase it. Um, so I think someone else said that on staff and chat. I don't remember who, or it might've just been someone that I scrolled past. I don't know, but I think it's a great way of thinking of Neil. Neil just lacks the cohesive tissue where it's like, I'll, oh, I'm have a good head kick, but I forget about it. And it makes it really frustrating to watch because you can see those tools are there. He just doesn't have the comfort. Whereas with Pons and you see a lot more comfort, but Nibbi also has defensive issues, where he's heavy on the front leg, etc. So, Walter Waite is so weird. Because, I mean, the only ones you can really expect to, like, be consistent are kind of Luke and Burns. Because even their cha- top light fighters, like an Usman or a L- Edwards, like, they still have inconsistent moments. And, I mean, other guys are also possibly on the downhill at this point such as Mazvadol. Um, Walter was just weird, and I, I think it deserves its own discussion as well. So does every division, but um, not not much to say about that one. Uh, Kai Kara France Cody Garbrandt. You you know what Cody Garbrandt's biggest problem is? Like, let's pretend the weight cut might not have contributed to this. And I mean, then again, it's not like Garbrandt can't really take a great shot, anyways. The th- biggest problem with Garbrandt is always if you mess with entries you're going to probably catch him because mechanically Garbrandt should be way better than he is like his pocket boxing is outstanding but he's so bad at enforcing it on the counter because guys will just figure out how to create entries and like Dominic Cruz figured out towards the end of his fight with Garbrandt if I can just throw my jab at different rhythms in this guy's face he can't do much about it Dillashaw set up head kick knockdown and then right hook knockdown. It's in their first fight that way. Hey, eh? Munoz kept hacking the legs because he wouldn't do much. Fond kept the jab in his face all night. There wasn't, like, Cody, for all of his talent, just still doesn't have, like, that cohesive game. And he's not exactly bad either. Like, he could still be really dangerous. Like, he showed against Asuncel if you can't create those dynamic entries, and you can't, like, really, really get inside behind layers, you're going to get laid the fuck out. But it's also, oh, oh you know, it's it's kind of sad because Cody Garbrandt should be a lot better than he is. He certainly has the talent. I don't have much to say about O'Malley Paiva. Ironically, though, Paiva was kind of winning many of the striking changes on the feet. And, and O'Malley still seems to have the same problems, vulnerability to kicks, needing to press the initiative, but that guy definitely has great killer instinct. His shot selection when he has guys hurt really shows some ability there. But again, like he really needs a step up in competition. And given how prone to injury he is in and out of fights, it's a little worrying for him once he gets the approach on. Um, Emmett Ige, I confess my attention was a little split during this one. And I, I see that it was really controversial scoring wise. I think I scored it to Emmett, but I think Ige kind of showed a little more wrinkles as a fighter. It, it was kind of a close one. Um, overall, not not much to say about it. Emmett still has like really deceptive like reads on his entries that make it difficult. Ige like started playing the okay, I'm gonna draw you in and then take angles on you and counter. And then Emmett tried to do that a bit back to him in the third. And I think that's why the third was so close, but um, not not much to say. Decent fight, Cruz Munoz. Um, crew. Um, I I call this a strategical failure on Munoz's part because I think a lot of us were like Munoz should have this, and technically with a few alterations he could. Um, the biggest problem Munoz had is he tried to play the Cody game on the front foot. And the problem with that is, um, we're also in neutral space, is that, well, for one thing, Munoz doesn't throw as much in the pocket or is as fast as Garbrandt is on the pivot. Although he does have a great check hook, and that's how he dropped Cruz at first. Because when Cruz doesn't really like, Cruz can be very sloppy on the entry of his punching exchanges. And Munoz did hurt him really, really bad there but um the fact remains Munoz wasn't mixing up the kicks to punish Cruz's resets which frankly everyone should be doing but I also have to give Cruz a lot of credit because I I think Dominic Cruz has always been um underplayed for how smart of a fighter he is is in terms of like adjusting although Cruz has a really gimmicky kind of style with lots of weaknesses with his footwork especially being able to be punished on resets on the counter in the pocket as Suhudo, Garbrandt, etc. have shown. it's Cruz is, has a great understanding of space, and he has an even better understanding of how to really like dog his way back into it. And how Cruz really got into this fight again was understanding Munoz is going to try to tag me one shot at a time. I'm going to play the Modador game on him, him with my pocket game, but I'm going to mess with the entries behind my jab and throw away like straight rights to really get inside, and mess with his timing as to when I'm going to do that. Because if he's going to let me have the initiative, I'm going to press for that. So I think a good way of looking at this fight was that it was a strategical kind of failing on Munoz's part. But Cruz really, really picked up on that and took advantage of it wholeheartedly. Because um, the the thing about initiative is, um sure, you can let the other guy go first. Let them lead on the count so you can counter them, but if you aren't able to establish threats to really, really punish them, and if you're going to work on the counter, you don't have more than one, a few tricks, then that other guy is going to pick up on that and try to find different ways to really, really take advantage of that, and that's what Cruz did, really. Um, so I, I think it was a great pass-prime performance from Dominic Cruz. It kind of also shows that there is a capstone on Munez's ceiling, because I do think Munez is still a good fighter, but I do think Munoz is also a guy who is going to have his strategical or like kind of, well, maybe depth's the right word. Depths of Munoz's game, I think, just kind of have a lot to be desired, as dangerous as he is. Um, I don't really have much else to say about this card. Um, it, it's It was good overall, pretty interesting. The main event had the round of the year and a fantastic performance. The Co Main, as funny as it was, it, it's a it's a historical upset. And you know what, history, even with like some context and frustration, matters. Um, some great knockouts and and crew, crews turning back the clock a bit was pretty cool. Um, so that's two sixty nine. Um, I do have some Patreon questions to cover real quick. Um, I was asked about what do I. Th- Ink of Duran's stroke game. Um, I, I've always figured Roberto Duran probably has a great butterfly stroke because of how much his upper body relies upon the infighting, so I think, like, he probably swam butterfly a lot, or freestyle, you know, um, pr- probably more the upper body kind of things, like, a uh, backstroke probably wasn't really the thing to do that, but, um, he strikes me as a butterfly kind of guy with how much you have to bend your waist over on the inside, you know, um, there was an interesting patreon question I got which was what parts of combat sports do you really struggle to understand? This wasn't specifically for me and it might have been answered already on um, the MMA pod. but I think I, I want to answer it personally because I think it presents a lot of opportunities for kind of uh, us kind of explaining process and stuff. So for me, I think when I first started, the biggest thing that really, really gave me a hard time was dealing with, um, things I didn't know how to explain or like dealing with concepts that maybe I couldn't find answers to, because th- that's something you kind of have to get used to is that sometimes you're not going to find the answers to everything. And fortunately I have enough academic and work experience where that's kind of common, but with, um, The way my brain works, I'm kind of an explainer by nature, so I want to understand something. Um, And I I remember a conversation I had with Ryan Wagner originally when Ryan was kind of, well, not voluntarily, but um, I I was asking him questions about how things worked and he was explaining things. He kind of said to me at one point, I think this is something you kind of have to train for yourself to kind of get. And I was like, okay. And it was a fair statement because um, I really didn't understand a lot of um, that until I did train. I think um, the statement you have to train in order to get something isn't 100% right. I think everyone can agree with it. But it really benefits if you do. Like it can add to your experience. So being able to spar um, and work the bag and learn how to punch mechanically decently really opened my eyes into how, A, how exhausting it was. B, how much um, you really have to look out for and pay attention to, who even subconsciously. And it really made me respect like fighter mechanics with their punching form and guards and timing and body movement. Like how you position yourself oh, posture-wise and all the little movements here or there, folding your hip, etc., That kind of thing, like, I I think I really realize the benefit of experience, but there's also experience I don't have, and sometimes that also just, um, is kind of its own issue. So, I want to say, um, other little things I think matter a lot that are hard to understand. I think learning, um, this isn't just for me, I think it's for people in general. Um, learning ring craft is really tough, like, Learning how to like fight with Ringcraft is tough, but I also think learning how to distinguish it from footwork is also important. Or, um, the difference is Ringcraft is well, footwork is basically how you move, Ringcraft is the space you're navigating, basically. So it's spatial management versus like specific movements. And, um, ri- Ringcraft is hard to identify what qualifies as bad ring craft what qualifies as good ring craft that that kind of stuff i think just requires practice um i want to say that other things i struggle with sometimes i i think i think everyone's gonna just struggle with like what you do don't know what you believe is the right way and sometimes thinking outside blocks there are things you forget like um I think I speak for a lot of the community here in MMA at least, but, um, how many of us expected Max to kind of just roll over Yair, and he's, he eventually did, but I, I don't think anyone expected Yair Rodriguez to put much resistance, and it's sometimes, like, we forget the intangibles, we forget that athleticism plays, plays a role, we forget matcha oops matter, especially in MMA where so many phases matter, you know, um... That that kind of part is hard, just to remember. I, I don't... It's... And you're going to have blind spots, because it's like, you have expectations, and even within expectations, just things, things will surprise you. Like, who could have expected Oliveira to maybe have as much durability as he did against Poirier, who is a notorious hitter, but maybe that kind of makes you go back and reevaluate it. Maybe it's always been... Maybe instead of Oliveira, maybe having a shaky chin, it's more like he doesn't have a great chin, but he has excellent recovery. I think that's a good way of looking at it. I think when, when it comes to things you don't know, it's good to have re-evaluations of fighters or to ask like new questions then. And you're not going to know those. And so going into absolutes is a bad idea, I think, but that's, that's kind of what I try to do. And it's, it's still hard, even if you keep that in mind, like, trying to keep track of things you are and are good at as an analyst or trying to assess yourself and improve part of the reason why i watch so much combat sports anyways it's just so i have that background of information or resources to draw from because i also want to get better but i also want to my job as an analyst is to help like explain things to other people and really really kind of articulate what i've learned and so i can communicate with other peoples and create peers and you know what if someone gets better than me at the process Hey, that's a, re- that's a great thing, because then I can learn from them. Um, that's kind of how I think in regards to um, analysis and also just the things we do. Um, I struggle with wrestling and grappling a lot. It's just because it's not my niche. I haven't studied it enough. Um, I can point out like general things and kind of get a read on if chokes are deep enough or whatnot, but I can't explain like mechanical or technical things compared to, like, maybe one of the grapplers on our team. But it's something that, at the very least, I can sort of pick up on the patterns of, or make decently educated guesses. It's just not my strength. And it's something I struggle with as a result. Um, Sometimes there are fighters I won't get. Sometimes there are just fighters that you just are going to look at, and you're just like, I don't get this guy. No matter what I do, he's just not someone I'm going to... Just click with, or sort of like get. Sometimes, like I personally, when when it, because of my weakness with wrestling and grappling analysis, sometimes I'll find a grappler maybe more vulnerable on the feet than I think, and then he kind of surprises me. He with some of the things he does in the next fight, I'll go like, oh, maybe I didn't see that before. I think a lot of people might struggle with being wrong, but I think that's okay. Being wrong is a good thing, again, because it allows for re-evaluations. Um, usually with things you don't know in combat sports that I found, a little tidbit of knowledge about myself is um, when I didn't have the experience of combat sports as a background, I made up for it by my enthusiasm with willing to learn, but also like applying different knowledge skills that I learned from different fields. So maybe I'm a really avid... Learner in the education field. And I tried to, at the very least, like take some of the lessons I learned from being a student or a learner in those fields and apply them. So maybe I was a literature major, so I read a lot of books. We had to do a lot of close reading, pay attention to patterns, and find like overarching ideas. Some of that I can easily apply to watching combat sports because a lot of analysis is, well, patterns at making connections. That kind of thing matters. Here's another little tip. So I said RingCraft is hard to really understand. You want to know how I kind of taught myself how to learn RingCraft? So I play a lot of difficult video games, and I used to play some fighting games competitively in my youth. And a big thing that I learned from playing those games is that positioning your characters and knowing your options matters a lot. So applying that to kind of like watching fighters or recognizing patterns in fights like made it a lot easier to grasp those difficult concepts like Ringcraft and whatnot. I'm definitely not perfect at it, but it definitely really helped like me think outside the box and think about, Hey, this might be how this concept works. Um, so that, that covers Patreon questions. I figure since I have some time, I, I can mostly go on some, a bit of a longer thing. So we're towards the end of the year of combat sports. Um, how did I think this year kind of looked in general? Obviously, since I watched MMA the most, I mean, I don't really think this has been the most exciting year for MMA. You could probably contribute part of that to COVID-19 you, still going on and the transition of real life going back into it. You could also, like, point out just also matchmaking in the UFC is just consistently still problematic. The UFC struggling to find, like, consistent, like, big events and don't really promote things well, but they also like make cards hard to fall. Since I started doing the preview pods, it's really become apparent to me like just how much um, oversaturation there is in terms of competition, but also just in terms of how cards are structured. Um, but I, I think towards the end, this year really picked up quite a bit. Looking at each um, kind of division holistically... Flyway didn't really have a lot of like. Sh- I can't really comment on the women's divisions too much. I think uh, the Rose Zhang rivalry was fun for the most part. Um, but it kind of opens up new questions of where does the division go? I can't really speak on women's Flyway because it's basically the Valentina Shevchenko is way better than everyone else show. Um, Nunez getting knocked out opens things up. But can't really speak on 135-145 for women. Uh, men's flyweight um, didn't really have a really uh, big year. Mostly it was Moreno um, knocking out... No, sorry, submitting Figueredo. I apologize. Um, which has opened up a trilogy match. Which, I mean... Who really knows how to call that fight? The second fight was already weird to call. And this one's now even weirder. Because you can't really know where is at. And it... it And just how much Moreno really, really improved. Even though I'd say he did. Um, The second fight is just going to be one of those that makes interpreting the third one harder. Um, Bantamweight, I I think... Bantamweight kind of took a one step forward, one step back kind of thing. Because for all the fantastic fights we had this year at Bantamweight. Because Bantamweight really delivered. Or basically everywhere. The only real asterisk Bantamweight had this year was a bit of the title fuck-up, and most of it was Piotr Jan's fault, to be honest, because of his kneeing, I don't know if his corner told him to do it, or if he decided to do it himself, I, I don't know the full situation, but um, Jan really shit the bed, and, um, but at least uh, the fights this year at Bantamweight absolutely fucking ruled, like Bantamweight, it is the best division in the UFC, and I'm not even sure it's, remotely close. And even outside the UFC, there's still a lot to like. Like, the Pettis-Horiguchi like, super fi- crossover fight that happened. Hell, Bellator is even making, like, some kind of tournament. Which, I mean, Sergio Pettis and Horiguchi are Swatch Fighters anyway, so you should be keeping an eye on them. Um, Featherweight. Featherweight, I, I think, kind of got stuck in a bit of a flux, because it's still like, Max and Volker at the top, and we're inevitably building towards that trilogy fight that everyone wants. But, I mean, Max and Volk had really f- fun fights this year. Or I think the Ortega fight for Volk was a little more competitive than people are going to admit. Because Ortega did, like, Loki kind of stun him a few times. But, for the most part, Volk looked incredible in that fight in the third round. I mean, the third round speaks for itself about what kind of fighter Volkanovsky really is. And then, I mean, Max basically stole Calvin Cater's soul... All, and then, like, basically really, like, t- hook over the Yair fight right after, like, a torrid first round, even though Yair was still pretty game. There's not much to really say about featherweight. A lot of fun fights happened, but nothing outstanding. 155 actually, I think, had a lot of advancements because, <laughs> finally, the tone, with Khabib kind of retiring, which, again, is its own kind of um, sad feature, it's opened up a lot of things, and boy, did lightweight deliver in terms of fights this year as well. Because of that, like with Chandler really coming, coming I in mean, to make the division more exciting, the Dustin Borea, Conor McGregor, f- it's happening. Um, Oliveira's Rain. just it, it's a very fun division with some up and comers. Um, it's possible a turnover is going to happen, or just we're going to have a pretty competitive opening. Walter weights weird. I've already kind of said it, but. I I don't know where it's going, it's just... Everyone at the top is so inconsistent and strange, it's just... I I suspect it's a post, like, GSP-era identity crisis that was kind of back when Lawler was champion too, and then it, like, became the Old Man Woodley era. (laughs) Old Man slash Woodley era, as I call it. And now it's just like, hey, the new blood's here, but the new blood kind of doesn't have a direction. Who knows, um, middleweight kind of got weirder with, um, Adesanya and Whitaker's rematch on the horizon. Tough fight for Whitaker, but, um, it, there are some avenues for him, I'd say. Um, and, and then, like, the rest of the competition is just, it's middleweight, really. Light heavyweight seemed like it had an advancement with Jan Blachowicz. it's but then Glover Teixeira had an old man hero moment, and it's revealed, oh, you didn't actually improve your ground game. Yawn, oh geez. But, um, I'll give Glover credit. It's a feel good story. Heavyweight finally, I think, has, um, an interesting narrative on the horizon with the Cyril Gon and Francis Nganu big fight. Watching kind of the end of Stipe Miochus's area is kind of sad because he's going to go down as one of the more unheralded champions the UFC has had because, he, well, he didn't bow to Dana White's feet, but, um, Stipe, um, is definitely, I'd say, Loki a really important fighter in terms of the big picture, like, um, and maybe I'll republish kind of a short blog post I wrote about him one day, but, um, Stipe is a fighter who matters a lot to me, and I have a lot of sentimental love for him, um, for the most part, heavyweight at least has an interesting fight coming up that I also suspect might be pretty boring, but it's intriguing on paper, So looking at this holistically, maybe some awards, um, fighter of the year, to be honest, if Jan didn't mess up against Aljo, I think this would be an easy pick for me. Um, no one in MMA this year impressed me more watching than Piotr Jan. Um, just the way he defused Aljo and then like took over that fight against Sandhagen, just some of the best like skills I've ever seen in any MMA fighter. He's absolutely unbelievable he's one of the best mma fighters i've ever seen and god help the bantamweight division because cory sanhagen gave him a hell of a fight jose aldo gave him a hell of a fight and neither of them were good enough aljamain sterling as good of a fighter as he is he is it's hard to see him holding onto that belt from a dq for too long just a really scary scary opponent but since Jan got that DQ, he is not the fighter of the year. And I think it comes down to other things. Some people will say Usman because Usman got, like, Usman, I think, Usman got three wins this year, I think, um over to- over competition. And it's like, well, I can kind of see, but Masvidal kind of looked bad. Burns kind of, Burns is a good fighter and kind of underrated, but he kind of like can't sustain his own pace. And then Covington, that fight was a mess, but so, I'm, it, it kind of made me less impressed with Hoosman. Um, Vol, Volk and Max both looked good, but can't really give it to them. Jose Aldo had a great year, though, Um, in terms of showcasing things. Like, the win over Font was a gritty-as-hell win. And he looked pretty good against... Uh, oh, God, who was his last opponent? I'm going to have to look this up because I'm really tired. Oh, yeah, he really beat the shit out of Pedro Munoz. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, doing that against some of the top, like, bantamweight eights at this state of Aldo's career is its own, like, impressive statement. Um, I wouldn't give Aldo Fighter of the Year, though. I think Fighter of the Year, for me, was going to come down to who won Charles versus Dustin. And, I mean, well, it was Charles. So, I, I think, like, if since I can't default to Yawn, the answer is Charles Oliveira. Um, let me see let me see fight of the year that's an interesting one for mma but i'm gonna for me i think it's Gagey chandler there there were some great fights this year some unheralded fights like quarantillo burgos was fantastic basically most of lightweight the lightweight fights this year were fantastic bantamweight had some incredible fights this year featherweight had some incredible fights this year i, I think Gagey chandler is going to be everyone's pick um Barring some exceptions, it, it was just... That was everything I think you could have asked for in terms of insanity. Um, Knockout of the year. Oh god, what is Knockout of the year? Um, I don't know. Hold on, hold on. I think it might be Usman Masvidal? Because that was an insane knockout. No, wait, wait, I'm going to pick Poirier McGregor. It's it's Poirier McGregor. That was an amazing knock knockout. Oh. Um, and I'm picking it strictly out of petty reasons, but you know, uh, submission of the year. I don't know. Has there been, I didn't really pay much attention to crazy submissions, though. It was really, really funny to see Clay Guida tap out Leonardo Santos after Matt's joyous spend like the last few days telling me and Ben Cohn how good Santos was. That was really amusing. Uh, no, submission of the year, it might be Moreno Figueredo, just in terms of, like, stakes. But I don't know. Submission of the year is not a category, okay I right know. Um, I don't really see the point in talking about, like, other things. Event of the year was probably, like, 267 or 268. Eight, uh, you know, whatever. I refuse to comment on any of the others, because who? that's not really my place. But, um, yeah, I think MMA, like, had a decent year. It really picked up towards the end with craziness. There were some crazy things that happened earlier in the year, but the kind of a lull in between, you know. But, um, decent year. Really picked up towards the end. Uh, and it's still not over. There could still be a little more. Um, Other sports. You know, I wasn't able to watch enough of boxing, kickboxing, or Muay Thai this year. So I can't comment on the Muay Thai scene. Can't comment on wrestling. Which sucks, because I really want to get more into those, more than I have. Um, Kickboxing had a few important things that happened. Obviously, like, the eight-man tournament that one's putting on in the cage, which is disgusting, but goddamn, guys, the Superbon Petrosian knockout, like, that's one of, I think, the two big stories of kickboxing this year. We're in a vacuum, just insane knockout. Now, like, across all combat sports, actually, that should be knockout of the year across all combat sports, because there's nothing more significant, really, in terms of a knockout. Uh, like seeing a goat candidate get taken out by probably like um the other best guy in the world, uh, and plus there's a lot of interesting fights on the horizon that turn tournament. And hell, we might get another Moragorian shy out, which you know what? As much as we've seen that fight, can't complain. It's eye level and fun. Ah, uh, excuse me. Um. The other big kickboxing story was Takeru tension still being put off. But you know what we did get? We did get that insane shootout with Takeru and Leona Pettis, which, I mean, if you've not seen that, you should. Just, it's six to seven minutes of just an incredible shootout. Like, incredible doesn't even do it justice. God bless Takeru, the v- one of the most violent fighters of all time. And he had a game dance partner here. Please give us take care attention. It's all we want. Um, Rico Verhoeven actually had a fantastic fight. Um, against uh, oh god, what was his name? I am super Jamal Ben... Sorry, Jamal Ben Sadiq. Um, it's on YouTube right now, and I mean, if you've not seen it, basically, um. It's a crazy fight that probably should have been stopped in the third, because then it got really, really kind of sad. But just the opening, like, two and a half rounds, it's just batshit chaos. um, Insane fight. One of the best heavyweight kickboxing bouts I think everyone has ever seen. And in um, a, a fight that even if you didn't like Rico Verhoeven, I think it's just enough gu- of a gutsy performance from him that it goes like, Jesus Christ, that was awesome. Um, the cut was so bad, too. Um, boxing. Unfortunately, boxing, I wasn't able to pay much attention to this year, but a lot of cool things did happen. Usyk Joshua was one of the big things. Fury Wilder 3. An insane, dramatic fight with momentum shifts. Yes, um... um, I, I think most people have already talked about that fight, though. Um, oh, God, what else happened? I mean, the Crawford Spence talk's still being put off, um... Josh Taylor continues to be cool. Regis Pogre continues to be cool. and Neway continues murdering fools. Um, the 115 scene continues to get awesome because Chocolatito and Estrada had a rematch nearly a decade in the make. And again, they delivered on a fight that was probably as good as their first fight. Not as insane, but like, the skill level was just absolutely nuts. And you still have plenty of competition at that weight class. Um I mean the Olympics also I think happened this year for boxing and I think my colleague uh Taylor Higgins has already written about that. Um I know my other colleague Luke Ash is probably more equipped to cover the boxing scene but um you know boxing's had a pretty good year right? I think in terms of like those big moments and hopefully we get more big moments next year. Obviously like Spence Crawford Fury Usyk are just two of the many things that we hope happen and next year that should happen but you know, um, I think combat sports are, for the most part, based upon this year, despite COVID being its own, like, brand of frustrating, um, I, I think things are going well, but, uh, I, I don't really have much else left to talk about, and my voice is getting tired, because, you know, I can talk forever, but I'm lazy, um, so anyways, this was My Life is a Goddamn Mess, um, what can I pitch? If you enjoyed listening to this, um, mostly we have a Patreon where you can support our work, our analysis on our site, which, I mean, a lot of us who do write and make videos put the work in. Um, you can contribute. I think the minimum is 3 to $5 now. And, I mean, you can influence podcast questions. You can make requests on articles. We'll get around to it when we're able to. Um, we're also just pretty approachable we have a discord or we're approachable on twitter i for instance have open dms which may be a mistake but i don't just talk about combat sports and usually i'll say what i want but um yeah i i I don't mind being asked questions or talking about things hell if you want to just find good fights to watch um i'm usually your guy for that because especially with boxing classics i am going around collecting those as much as i can but um, you know what? I-, I love combat sports. They're awesome. They show me just different things, really. And it's really it. So this was my life is a goddamn mess. Episode two, and ain't that the fucking truth? If you all take care now.